Hi, welcome to podcast number 45, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's, a nonprofit organization. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist at Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Budfinick. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sub. Hi, Warren. Thanks for having me. Sure, glad that you could be here. Today, we're uh, going to discuss something that we went over partially during a previous podcast, but today we'll be going it fully. And the topic is driving while having Parkinson's. And it's a little more complicated than it appears. So Dr. Soup, could you start us off and then I'll come in a little bit later? Yep. So um, driving in Parkinson's is always a, a very uh, touchy-feely uh, sort of topic, um, especially in rural areas of America where driving is critical and getting one place to another uh, requires a personal vehicle and public transportation is very limited um, or sometimes doesn't even exist. And in that situation, uh, when a person has Parkinson's disease, there's always concern whether that individual can keep driving and have the independence of driving uh, for um, them to be able to go to from place to place. So let's talk a little bit about driving in general, and then we talk uh, how it applies to Parkinson's disease. So as most listeners would already recognize, driving is pretty much an all or nothing phenomenon. So either you can drive or you cannot drive. So oftentimes I hear families with Parkinson's disease come to clinic, and when we start talking about driving, uh, either the spouse or the, the patient himself or herself would start saying that, oh, I only sh drive short distances. I only go through familiar areas. I only um, go to the post office. I only go to the local um, grocery store. But if you think about it, if you can drive, then you can drive anywhere, whether it's a highway, it's a local uh, uh, passageway, or even your own driveway. Uh, but if you can't drive, then you shouldn't be driving at all. So it has to be all or nothing. Uh, so there's no in-between that, oh, you only drive short distance. And also this driving is applicable for other types of uh, equipment use. Uh, for example, uh, like a, mon a lawnmower or um, other types of heavy instruments um, or even climbing up ladders, et cetera. We worry about these things in people who have difficulty with um, program motor activities such as driving. So let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of driving. So when you were 15, when you started to learn to drive, um, you had lots of things that you had to keep in mind, where the foot goes on the gas pedal, how you have to move it from the gas pedal to the brake, and then how to control the steering and then how to take a left and how to right, take a right, etc. But once you learn to drive, uh, you can pretty much um, drive without any kind of concerns because your brain has a program for driving. And most of us who uh, learn to drive at 15, by the time we are driving comfortably, um, we are able to hold a conversation um, on the phone, uh, of course, safely, which you have a speakerphone and so on and so forth or um, hold a conversation with the passenger without making errors while you're driving. And the reason you're able to do that is because 
our brain, once it learns a particular programmed activity, and in this case, driving is a programmed activity, then that activity can be stored away in the part of the brain uh, which we call the frontal lobe, and it's actually uh, distributed in the brain in different areas. That programmed information can be retrieved at will whenever we drive, and it can be executed. Now, unfortunately, in Parkinson's disease, when you have uh, deficiency of dopamine in the basic ganglia, this programmed execution becomes um, abnormal. So in other words, um, being able to drive as an automatic function becomes disturbed. You have to think about driving when you're driving. And this is not unique to driving. It also happens in other things. Like if you're a musician and you know how to play an instrument and you've learned it for many, many years, now when you play, once you get Parkinson's disease, you have difficulty executing uh, previously learned programs in music. But since the topic today is driving, we'll focus on driving again. So when this happens... Uh, people have difficulty with simple tasks such as um, how to take a left and how to take a right. And you have to look to the left and look to the right and make sure that everything is fine before you go. Or when you get to a stop sign, you have to automatically stop. Things that you learned and you did and executed for years become um, more tedious, more difficult, and those exercises become harder to do. So that's the number one issue in driving. Okay, as we were discussing, um, the second issue with driving uh, is that tremor that most patients have will uh, become more manifest while you're driving. And this is, again, not unusual. So, for example, you're resting your hand on the steering wheel and you're driving along and your hand starts to tremble, your finger starts trembling. And the spouse or whoever is sitting, a passenger is always concerned, oh my God, is the car going to be going okay or not? Sometimes the tremor can also appear in the foot or in the leg. And then the driver starts worrying, oh, is the trembling going to affect my driving? But in most cases, uh, the tremors don't interfere with the driving at all. And uh, you're able to drive just fine. The car doesn't wobble. car doesn't uh, exhibit a tremor. Nothing like that happens. And that's because, um, as we have discussed in previous podcasts, uh, tremor in Parkinson's disease is a rest tremor. When you actively use the limb for steering the car or when pressing on the gas pedal, the tremor actually disappears. So really, the tremor, which is really cosmetic, but it's of major concern, both to the driver as well as the passenger, can be an issue that can create uh, difficulties in the mind. The next issue is reaction time. How quickly do you react to a particular situation? So somebody jumps in front of you, or um, a, a car which doesn't put a turn signal on, just comes into your lane, how quickly are you able to react and put the brakes on? How quickly are you able to slow down? How quickly are you able to put turn signal on, turn the wiper on? So your reaction time, how quickly you are able to respond to things. And since there is slowness of movement, um, there is a natural tendency that you're not as quick enough. And then the last point is bradyphrenia, slowness of thinking. 
Um, this is where you anticipate as you're driving along, you see a car, uh, say maybe half a mile in or a quarter mile ahead of you. You see that my, that particular vehicle is not doing well. It's wobbling around, it's weaving, looks like the driver is drunk or whatever. And you take evasive action. You try to move away. You try to go to a different lane or you pull over. Or you see a snowstorm or ice storm and you, you sort of anticipate it's happening and you pull over. Or there's a uh, fire truck that's coming behind and you have to react to it. And you have to think through what do I do next? And that process of, you know, sequential thinking to avoid uh, a particular situation on the road, a road hazard of some kind. Uh, that's the fourth situation. To summarize, the four things that we just discussed, the first one is the overall idea of whether you're safe to drive and it's an all or nothing phenomenon. And if whether you're having cognitive difficulties in doing that uh, task. And then the details of it, the first one we considered was the tremor and how it can become worse while you're driving, but generally speaking, doesn't create issues. And then the reaction time, how quickly do you react to a situation uh, is the second issue. And the last one is bradyphrenia, slowness of thinking, which can also be an interference with uh, your driving. Uh, these are the main things. There are some other minor ones we can consider, for example, how easy is it for you to get into the car and get out from the car? Uh, for example, the seat is low. You may have difficulty coming out. Uh, lower the seat, the harder it is for Parkinson's patient to come out. And then visual issues, you know, uh, being able to see clearly with your vision. Vision can become blurred in Parkinson's disease. Your blink rate can be slow. So you may have to use adaptive equipment such as mirrors, to, to uh, adding an extra mirror or extra light may be necessary when you're driving. So these are the main points. Um, now, there are more things to talk, but I'm going to pause here as the problem, to define the problem, which is what we did at this point. And I'm going to ask Warren to, um, you know, ask his questions. Thanks. So uh, what would you do if a couple came into your office and this is what they've been sort of arguing about. The, the wife, assume the husband has Parkinson's, the wife is telling you he uh, slows down, slower than the rest of traffic. He has trouble switching lanes. He stops, stops and slows down for no reason at all on the major, regular road, drifts in and out of lanes, forgets to use traffic signals, gets lost on familiar roads, seems too tired to drive. He just misses, he doesn't notice people on bicycles or walking around him, getting tickets for small infractions, and occasionally getting very small fender benders. If somebody came in with that, would you consider that a baseline to keep an eye on if it, if it gets worse, or is that enough to have somebody not drive? So in Pennsylvania, if I heard that whole uh, list of concerns, I'm required by law to report the person to PennDOT, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. Um, it's a state law, and if there's sufficient concerns raised by the spouse and the uh, patient actually reluctantly agrees that there's some of these things going on, then um, I'm required to uh, report by state law uh, to PennDOT this individual. Um, 
Now, let's take the scenario when it's not that, that apparent. It's much more subtle. Uh, let's say it's like, oh, occasionally I'm having some difficulty and the spouse is not always in the, in the, in the vehicle. Or the ve- spouse occasionally notices that, oh, he forgot to put his time signal on. Um, that's not something that he's used to doing it, but occasionally that person is doing it. Or uh, more common is that the tremor is really bad. Uh, do you think he should stop driving because the tremor is really bad? Um, I'm worried whether he will be able to stop on time because there's a lot of tremor. And usually then I ask the question, okay, has he had any trouble? And the usual answer is no. Uh, I haven't had any trouble, but I worry about it. So why are you worried about it? Well, I see the hand shaking so badly. I'm not sure he's able to drive because I'm worried whether he'll make a mistake or not. So that where you're, you didn't see any trouble, but you're thinking maybe there's trouble. Now that's a time when you can consider doing a driver evaluation. You know, that, that scenario is where if you go to a driver's evaluation, a certified driver's evaluation is done, there may be adaptations that can be done to mitigate any issues. So, for example, the vision is not so great, adding an extra mirror, um, or if there's certain things like, you know, doorknobs or the steering wheel itself or some of the controls, if they can be adapted to make it a little bit more friendlier, and easier for the person to drive, or even just adjusting the seats, um, things like that. Simple things that can be done to make uh, a Parkinson patient driving more comfortable, more easy, so that they don't make you know minor errors and minor mistakes, uh, or just retraining them, just taking them through the driving exercise and reminding them how to do things right, similar to how you did when you were 15 or. 16, when you first learn to drive, you know, just going through those whole exercise one more time, um, or several more times, like simply going to a driving school and learning things, maybe solutions to offer at that time. Uh, and that sometimes is able to solve it. Now, the problem is that uh, insurance doesn't pay for many of these things. It's quite expensive. Uh, it's about $300 an hour for OT assessments. Uh, when you send it to occupational therapist or to a driver's assessment place. But there are certified um, occupational therapists and driving assessment programs that can be paid by certain commercial insurance. They, you can go through them and get that if that actually happens. So um, if, a, if a less subtle um, presentation, I think we can make some remedial action. Uh, but if it's blatant that the person is already having troubles, having minor fender vendors, is having issues, and their spouse is really concerned about this person's driving, they should probably stop driving and volitionally uh, seek um, other types of remedial actions for alternate modes of transportation. Now, I will throw this one caveat. If the patient is not optimized on their medication, and I'm concerned that that's what's causing them to have difficulty driving, I might then say, ha, wait a minute now, let's make sure that their medications are optimized. And then we'll put them back into driving and see, ha, maybe this is, this is what happened, that the, the issue is not really anything else, just simply that they, they weren't um, taking their medicines correctly, and that's right. the, yeah. Now, now let's, let's assume 
and that some of the early stage Parkinson's, they're driving, they could actually be working. Mm-hmm. And um, being that they've done studies that shows even newly diagnosed patients have some type of uh, limitations under their driving, it doesn't really show up to cause accidents, but it, it seems like it does affect a little bit. Would that list that I read be a good baseline to keep track if somebody really doesn't, doesn't have, they're not arrogant that they want to drive forever, but they want to be safe? Would that be a good way of keeping track of how safe you are on the road, keeping that list? Yeah, that list is a very comprehensive list that you mentioned. But again, that list, uh, if they are showing some of those things cumulatively, that would be bad news. But if, let's say, for example, a more subtle version of that, that list is what the spouse notices. And I think certainly that's something to keep mind of. You know? uh, right. I, I assume uh, that that point is clear, that if they're already there, then it's too late. But ahead of that, step step before would be the place where you want to catch it. Right, if they have no, no, none of those things right now, it's something they can just keep an eye on. Yes, if cons- if yes, some- yes. The spouse can certainly keep an eye on that list that you just went over. Right. Um, and if they are noticing those things, certainly that's something of great concern. That, uh, significant right. concern. Yes. And, and why do you think that people in early stage Parkinson's have difficulty driving when it comes to taking t- tests or getting evaluated? It doesn't, that doesn't roll over to actual driving experience? No. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a, a problem with the executive dysfunction. So uh, the programmed learning that you did, uh, and this is not only true for driving, but driving is one thing that affects people a lot. So we, we take very good attention to it. But uh, So what you did learn as a youngster by practice and rehearsal and doing it multiple times has been stored in your memory. And driving is a complex activity. There's a lot of things in there. You know, there's physical activity where you have to move certain parts of your body in a, in a sequence. Uh, and then there's uh, cognitive activity, thinking and planning. Uh, and you're driving a vehicle at a certain speed and adjusting the speed. And then there's visual spatial function, which is visual information and spatial function. And you have to coordinate that for the for not just yourself, but also for the vehicle. And then also recognizing the mechanical aspects of the machine. So if there's something faulty, the tire pressure falls off or the vehicle is veering. And then the weather, I mean, how the weather is and the road conditions are. So it's a lot of uh, coordination to make the driving happen. So when it's not in perfect shape and there are deficits in it, obviously things fall apart. And that needs to be remedied. So it's not a trivial task to, to, to remedy it quickly. And rehearsal, practice, and, and being able to do it again and again is what really allows us to be good drivers. Right. Does uh, deep brain stimulation help with driving? I don't know of any evidence that actually changes that. But again, optimizing medical therapy, that's a mm-hmm. great, great way to think about it. So whether it's... Um, pills and medications, or whether it's DBS uh, or any other treatment, optimizing your treatment will actually help you be better at everything that you do. So if your DBS is not optimized, then obviously that's a problem. Or if your medication is not working or they're they're not optimal, suboptimal, and then you undergo DBS so that you are more optimal, then of course it might make you a better driver. What what about somebody that doesn't sleep well at night and they, they... 
doze off a lot on the couch or watching TV, if that person drove, is it possible for them to doze off driving? Yes. So this is a very, very relevant issue. So not just the sleeping issue, which is, which is the most important thing that you brought up. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. So if you're not sleeping well and you have disturbed sleep, um, you're already compromised in the amount of dopamine that you're producing for the next day, and that compromises your functioning, A. B, you're sleep-deprived, so you're falling asleep during the day, and that could create an issue with your driving skills. Thirdly, there are several medicines, uh, especially the dopamine agonist medicines, ramipexol, ropinarol, and even to some extent carbidopa levodopa has been attributed to excessive daytime sleeping, and so that could be an issue that if you're excessively sleeping during the day and you're driving, you could finally fall asleep. Um, there was a reported idea that you could get something called sleep attack, although later on was found out not truly sleep attacks, just excessive daytime sleepiness, where people who took medicines like primapexol and ropinarol suddenly fell asleep um, and creating a really... Uh, threatening situation. Luckily, nobody got hurt, but uh, it was concerning enough that there was some warnings issued by the Food and Drug Administration uh, several years ago about these medicines. We have to be careful about driving uh, while you're on these medicines. So uh, it's particularly important if you are driving commercial vehicles. So that's even more complex um, beyond just uh, regular driving, uh, driving a passenger uh, vehicle or normal car or whatever. But if you're uh, driving a truck or a commercial driver's license, it's more complicated. And <clears throat> that's a whole different topic. We can get into that. And how do you uh, get certified for that? And what happens if you come down with Parkinson's? Uh, what's the process that you have to go through, et cetera. But uh, needless to say, way more complicated than just driving a normal uh, car or a van or truck. Right. I've I've read that uh, these people swear that they're not tired. They don't feel tired. They don't look tired, but they're sleep deprived, and their their body just shuts down. Is that is that true? Yes. So there have been studies where uh, they have shown that uh, there's no warning. So uh, people think, oh yeah, well I I'm gung ho. I can fight this, and I'll just have a cup of coffee if I feel sleepy, and I'll be able to drive. Uh, that's not necessarily true, that you could get a sudden attack of sleep and that attack of sleep can be so abrupt that um, you stop uh, uh, your ability to be cognitively intact for your driving skills. Um, so it was scary. Uh, it turned out that most of these people were sleep deprived. They weren't sleeping well. And that correcting that and making sure that they slept well um, avoided these um, acute attacks of sleep rather than being just drowsy throughout the day. Right. And you mentioned in the beginning of the program that the idea of sticking with familiar roads or when you're only a short trip, yeah. that that's really not, not, a, a, not a way to look at this. Is, is that yeah. what you meant, that people shouldn't just drive on yes. roads that they were used to? Yes, so exactly. So I think there is no such thing. And everybody, I think this is common sense, everybody knows that even if you're on your own driveway, uh, you could face a road hazard in your own driveway uh, or in a local road. I mean, so long as it's a public road, 
um, or even a private limited road, who, who knows who's going to be there? I mean, it could be that one day that you're going out there that somebody is um, driving uh, uh, half hazarded half and you're there and you have to deal with it. So uh, driving is a skill that you need to know. And so you can't say, well, I'd never drive on a uh, interstate. I never go on, you know, some uh, very fast road. I don't go do that, etc." So uh, again, I don't think these type of um, uh, excuses actually work. Uh, so either you drive or you don't drive at all. Um, that's, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so you're saying it may theoretically you may be able to drive okay under ideal conditions. You shouldn't depend on the fact that you only go into your weekly hair hair place yeah. and you're safe. But you, yeah. you you will you you could drive easier on that. But something may come out of nowhere, right? And you you so it's still dangerous, right? That's good to know because a lot of people don't realize that. You hear they say they say they only go shopping once a week. So they, those people should really be getting on a, a bus or a cab. Yeah, or, or, uh, or in some situations, you can even say, okay, I will drive, but I will have somebody with me in my passenger seat. Right. So, so they can actually watch over and make sure things are going well, which right. is a reasonable compromise if you're having only minor deficits, which can be fixed. Again, we can, those are things that we can work with. But if right. they're already having lots of issues, then obviously we have to report them to PennDOT. Right. What you want to avoid is somebody getting into an accident and hurting somebody and saying, I was only going to the store. Right. Absolutely. You're absolutely that's right. The, that's the worst case. Yep. Absolutely that right. Makes sense. Yep. Hey, do you have, you have any other things to be talked about with sleep? Anything new in the literature? I'm not aware of anything new in the literature, but as you correctly pointed out, um, there have been a number of studies that have shown that uh, when you do formal testing, some of the test uh, givers might uh, initially think that this person may not be suitable for driving, but then when they actually take them on the road test and do actually a road testing, they found out that they were okay with their driving skills. So I've had a number of um, patients who have come to me um, asking whether they are okay to drive because they're either their employer was concerned or somebody else was concerned. And oftentimes they're doing perfectly well. And then I say, okay, you're perfectly okay driving. There are other situations. I recently had a couple of situations where the spouse was very concerned and it turned out that the spouse was right, that uh, the driving was not up to, uh, up to par and we had to take away the driving um, uh, privileges for these individuals. Uh, it's very heart-wrenching. It's very difficult. Um, they're, they're losing their independence, and especially if they're living in rural areas where public transportation or um, even a ride is very hard to come by, um, then it becomes almost like you're not able to uh, go out and do things that you like to do, um, and you're always dependent on somebody else to take you everywhere. Uh, it is a hard thing, uh, but then again, you have to be safe and you have to be sound, so we usually do the right thing. Right, so what, what about the case where the Parkinson patient is very adamant, they say, I'm fine, and they, they refuse to stop driving, but everybody knows that, they're, that they shouldn't be driving. Yeah, this is a very difficult situation. I've had um, a few uh, patients who have just simply refused to 
So, I mean, one of the mechanism is uh, obviously letting uh, PennDOT know and then uh, PennDOT or a similar Department of Transportation in any state. And most states in America have rules on this if the doctor reports them. And PennDOT usually has to um, do some corrective action. Sometimes they um, suspend your license. Sometimes they call you for a hearing. Sometimes they have an independent investigation. There are alternate, these are outside of the purview of what the doctor can do. The doctor simply reports what the, the Department of Transportation does is their, their call. They have a committee that decides all these things. Um, so I think at times that's what happens. I've had some individuals, despite their suspension of their license, have been illegally driving. And then that becomes a real heart-wrenching event because the spouses are trying to protect these people from hurting themselves and others. And yet, even after the, um, the transportation department has taken away their license privilege, they still attempt to drive, which is quite dangerous, quite difficult. Um, right. And, you know, sometimes you have to deal with this in other other ways. Yeah, so the, the ways I read is about hiding the keys or selling the car. That yeah. seems like that could end up being a, a problem in the long run, having that type of interaction with your family. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, the, the social intervention has to be in the form of some, some form of uh, discouragement, some form of, um, some form of control uh, to be put in place for that situation. And again, may not have to be so drastic as to sell the vehicle, right. but, but there may be other things that they can do. You know. So there yeah. are control systems that you can put in that when somebody drives, you know who's driving, so on and so forth. So, right, it's true. And what, what about with your experience? Do you, do you have any advice on somebody that's right at the point of worrying about their, their spouse or who they're taking care of and driving? Well, do you have a way of going that seems be pretty successful? Most definitely bring it up with your doctor. Uh, I think most physicians, most family doctors, neurologists are very well aware of this, this situation. And I think um, in most situations, seeking your Parkinson doctor's counsel is probably most important because we're, we as specialists are most knowledgeable about how Parkinson's affect driving. And not everybody is a specialist and not everybody understands the limitations and things that you can do to help people. So Parkinson's is not uh, a complete no driving uh, condition. Unlike if you had a stroke, for example, or if you had lost vision in one eye or um, other kinds of, or you have epilepsy where you simply say you can't drive at all. Parkinson's is mm-hmm. subtle. If you're optimally managed, your medications are working well and, you're relatively doing well. You, most cases, you can drive safely for many, many, many years. Most Parkinson patients are driving for a good number of years, usually more than a decade, a couple of decades in most cases. Um, I have individuals who have been driving for 30 years with no difficulty despite having Parkinson's. So I think it's not a you know uh, all or nothing situation. So talk to your doctor, talk to a specialist. Make sure that they understand where you are coming from. Uh, and then if there's no other solution, then we will have to make you stop driving. But at that point, we will come up with some alternate ways in which we will preserve some of your independence. Right. Yeah, it's important to handle it the right way because you don't want it to be an accident that causes it all to, to happen. Right. 
you're trying to prevent that. I think we covered everything, Warren. I think it's a good show. Thank you for having me here. And I uh, hope uh, we get more questions on feedback. Yeah? Sounds good. All right. Take good care. Night. Good night.